Hello, everyone. My name is Brooklyn Myers, and I am an Elixir newbie. My goal is to help people adopt Elixir and grow as developers while doing the same myself. I do that by documenting and sharing my own experience in the Elixir industry. It's been an incredible journey so far, and I look forward to taking the next step with you. So let's jump in to the Elixir Newbie Podcast. As a self-reclaimed sticks and boxes developer, I admit that my artistic talent is not where I want it to be yet, uh, but I can see the importance and value of understanding UI and design and UX so that you can build better applications. And that's why I'm incredibly grateful to be chatting with my good friend, Kurt Steigleiter today, who helped with the design of elixirnewbie.com. Uh, hello, Kurt. Thank you for popping on. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. My pleasure. So you and I met uh, a long time ago back in high school. Well, I say a long time ago, maybe five, eight years, somewhere in that mark. Something and bad. we were a couple of metalheads, uh, pro, uh, not programmers at this point, more musicians. You have stuck with that path and are still uh, an awesome metal shredder. Um, I have since put down my drumsticks, but we both found ourselves in programming. So I would love to know how did that happen? Uh, how did we go from cool? Uh, well, you stayed the same. How, how do how do we both get into programming? How did we wind up falling into this path? So what what happened? I feel like I, I turned around and we were both doing the same thing. Yeah, it was definitely surprising to realize you know we had both kind of like taken this this left turn in in, in the same direction. So for for me. I got into programming, and I always like to say, uh, by accident. I still don't really know how it happened. Um, <laughs> but to, to, to actually answer that question, what, what really happened was I was working as kind of like an office admin for a mortgage broker. And what that really meant was I was doing everything, everything I possibly could for a business. I was doing bookkeeping. I was designing collateral materials and doing social media management and doing email marketing and even managing paid search and then doing website um, updates and upkeep. And so doing all of these different things and kind of getting, getting into not necessarily web development, her website was on Wix, but getting into that mindset of, okay, I'm maintaining a website. And then what really kind of actually pushed me in, into development and programming was a friend of mine wanted to start his own business and he was going to do sales consulting. And I, and I, I just reached out and said, Hey, you know, if you need help with social media, if you need like any website help, you know, I would love to, to help you out just as a friend. And then what ended up happening was we had some conversations that turned into, Oh, we're starting a business together. <laughs> and this was actually while I was finishing my university degree in communications. So I do have a formal education, just not anything related to what I do now. And so we were talking about kind of the, the strategy for this business that we wanted to start. And it was going to be an online marketing company. And one of the services that we really felt strongly about offering to our clients was search engine optimization. Obviously, search is hugely important. It will never get less important. And there is, of course, an on-page component of search engine optimization, but just as important, and in my opinion, 
almost more important because it gives you a, a foundation is technical SEO. And so we, we decided, okay, well, we're going to have to offer websites to our clients in some way, because if we're trying to maintain a really janky old website for a client, they're not going to see results and we're just going to lose a client and it's going to be a huge headache. And then we started discussing, okay, well, how are we going to do this? And eventually it came down to, well, Kurt will do it. <laughs> and so I had to then, you know, take a bunch of online courses, do a bunch of, of, of uh, reading and, and relearning because I had done a little bit of HTML and CSS in high school. And so, you know, learning HTML, learning CSS, um, and then eventually learning JavaScript and learning how to connect APIs and things like that. Because our clients would often want, for example, hey, um, I would love to be able to get information from this service and show it on my website. So I had to figure out, okay, how do I do that? <laughs> and it, it's interesting because I like to say I was never really a junior developer. I was only ever a senior developer with the skills of a junior because I had all of the responsibility with none of the infrastructure around me. So it was a lot of just, you know, making things work and, 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 and learning as I, as I had to. And then eventually, unfortunately, that, that business, uh, we, we had to kind of discontinue it um, we were we were successful financially, but there was some breakdown between my two business partners that I had because we ended up taking on a third, and just it wasn't good for any of us, and so we ended up you know letting our contracts run out and kind of going our separate ways. And then after that, I kind of thought about okay, well, what path do I have in front of me for a career? Because obviously at that point I was 25, I think, um, and trying to decide okay, well. I've just spent over a year of my life doing, again, everything I possibly could for a business because I was self-employed. What, what, what do I want to do? And so I thought about I could continue with marketing. You know, I had, I, I had actually finished my degree, managed to graduate with distinction too, so I could go into marketing. Um, I could go into some manner of design because when we were building websites, I was also handling all of the design work. So I could go into that or I could go into development. and what I really decided was you have a little bit less of subjectivity in development where, you know, obviously there are opinion, people are very opinionated about how to write code and style guides and things like that. For example, you know, PEP8 for Python. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Uh, but there, there is a little bit less of, of subjectivity. Something either works or it doesn't. It's either performant or it's not. And so I decided I'm going to go into development sent out a bunch of resumes and uh, got a job and, and it really just kind of brings me to now. So nice. It can sometimes be crazy overwhelming when you have a lot, like you have a very varied skill set because you did something. So um, what's the right word? Like independent, like you're, you're, I'm going to start a business, which means that your responsibilities are going to be incredibly varied. So you wear a lot of hats and do many things but that means when you're actually looking for, okay, like what's the next step, you have this incredibly wide breadth of what's available and what can you do next? Um, I'm curious, do you feel like you've made the right choice? Uh, like, are you going in the right direction? Are you enjoying development? Does it work for your brain? Or is there a part of you that's like, ah, you know what, maybe I want to go step over and, you know, do this. Obviously things change, but you know, where, where are you kind of at with that now? I really do think that I made the right decision. I love programming. I love learning about it. You know, I, 
I willingly learn about data or willingly learned about, you know, data structures and algorithms. What's a linked list? How's that different from a doubly linked list? You know, all these, what's a hash map, all these different things, just because it, it's just interesting to me at like an, uh, in like an academic way. And then, so getting to do that and then also, you know, do that for a living is, is really rewarding. And then I think that obviously having the, the very background that I do has actually really helped me as a developer and a programmer in, in a way that maybe some people wouldn't expect. And a lot of it is in how it enables me to be a better teammate because, you know, when a designer is, you know, showing me a design, I've been in that seat before. I've been, you know, I've been the one presenting a design during a design review with a client and, and you know, <laughs> dealing with all of those questions of, well, can we make the logo bigger? What do you mean we shouldn't make the logo bigger? <laughs> you know, I've I feel that those <laughs> questions, you know, I've, I've had to answer those questions before. Or, you know, my main responsibility right now at work, I work with a telehealth company called Plushcare as a software engineer, and my main responsibility is supporting our marketing team. And so, obviously, I have a background in marketing. So, when they're saying something, we we I can kind of speak their language, and I know where they're coming from in a way that a lot of other developers that I've worked with in the past, you know, kind of wouldn't because uh, again, I've been there, <laughs> you know, I've been the one yeah. trying to say, well, you know, we're, we've seen this keyword growth and this is why that matters. Um, and so I, I think it really has been a good decision. And then those other skills that I have have really fed into me being a better teammate. And then my, my academic background in communications and, and uh, a lot of writing uh, has made me, um, willing to write documentation, which I know a lot of developers <laughs> really do not like. Whereas for me, it's like, oh, you know, this is just a couple hundred words about, you know, how, how this section of our app works. Sure. You know, this isn't a 5,000 word literature review like I had to do in, in university. This is easy. <laughs> so it's, um, it's very interesting to me how things from your past can become applicable. Like if you get into programming, whatever your background was before can actually really heavily, heavily influence how you program and how you approach that career. Like there are still lessons I take from um, sales and like various other things that I've done that I can apply, even music, weirdly enough, um, that you can apply to programming. And um, it's one of those careers that you do find more people transition to uh, obviously, there's plenty of people who just go straight into it, but it's also a very transitional career path where people come from all sorts of places because it's very accessible relative to other industries. You don't need to go to school, but you can if that's what you want to do. You can just teach yourself the skills. Uh, so a lot of people tend to transition to it, but I, I think sometimes I hear that voice of like, oh man, I'm, I'm starting late or, you know, I wasn't that 14 year old prodigy, so I'm never going to have a programming career. It's like, no, that's, you know, there's, there's so much value to whatever you were doing before that can come into it. Like, frankly, for my own career, um, it has not been technical skills that have led to career growth. It's been a lot more of the other soft side of things, being able to talk to people, explain things, you know, collaborating on a team. The technical side is just the like mandatory baseline, but then there's a ton of other kind of intangible, maybe more difficult to teach skills that propel you forward. I'm really curious though, how, uh, cause you and I both had that trial by fire experience. Our first job, we were kind of 
I don't want to define it, but kind of way over in our heads, you know, like you, you suddenly have to do far more than you're ready for and more responsibility is on your plate. Um, and now I have this opportunity where I'm going to get to help people learn Elixir um, with this Dockyard Academy. And it's really, it feels strange to me because I get to teach each concept in a very like protected environment where it's like, okay, we're going to talk about this subject and here's what it is and here's how it goes. Whereas like all of my learning didn't happen that way. It was all like, I really need to do this. What yeah. tools do I need to pick up to do that? Um, and now I'm trying to figure out like, how do I walk that line and balance it? So I'm curious, how did you ramp up? Like, how did you learn programming fast enough to be able to actually do it? Was it more like, did you spend a big chunk of time learning beforehand and then kind of jumping into it and then learning on the fly? Or is most of the learning done kind of as necessary? Yeah, how did, how did that progress? So a lot of it was just done as necessary obviously like when, when we determined that hey you know we're going to offer this service to clients i did spend some time you know learning okay well how does the web work what is an http request what is the dom you know all of these different things um but kind of at a very basic level because what we were doing really was not complicated it was a little bit of wordpress a little bit of shopify and a lot of webflow which if anyone is familiar with webflow really it's a way to visually write HTML and CSS, it's kind of what I refer to as the new generation of page builders, where you're not dragging and dropping like a square onto the page or text. You're in more of a tree structure. You're dragging and dropping a div, an H1, you know, an image, things like that, a paragraph tag, where you still really need to know how HTML works. You need to understand what semantics are. You need to, you know, understand how CSS works, too. Um, not in the same way as you would as, as what I would say, you know, traditional web development where you're actually writing code by hand, but you still need to know. And so kind of, I was in this, a little bit of a safer situation where there were some guardrails, you know, because we were mostly selling products on kind of these, not selling products, but selling services and then using these products to enable that a lot of the more kind of nitty gritty things I didn't have to deal with until I needed to. And obviously there were things like, oh, well, this client wants some vector animations on their site. How does Lottie work? How do I do this in After Effects? <laughs> how do I trigger this in JavaScript? Um, how does GSAP work? Think things like that. But again, it you know, af after we kind of went our separate ways um, from that company, I did spend a chunk of time like upskilling and really learning all these things and getting better at UX as well. But definitely, I I. I'm a big proponent of learning as you need to because nothing will motivate you more than than just needing to. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Sometimes this gets to light a fire. Uh, and um, I know I haven't converted you into an Elixirite just yet. Um, one day soon. Uh, but I have to say that I have appreciated your design chops immensely. Thank you. Um, you're the only reason that Elixir Newbie uh, is not completely grayscale with just literal like text boxes and, and divs everywhere. So um, yeah, that it's it's hugely important. And I was struck when we had conversations about it, how systematic and how many lessons you've taken. So like how, so so one, maybe we can talk about like, what do you think about design, UI, UX? Like, what are these things? And um, why are they important when you're building a website? Um, and then maybe we can jump into how do you learn them and get better? How do I, how do I get your skills, Kurt? Uh, <laughs> download your brain into me. Uh, well, 
I'm sure there's someone out there who is trying to figure out how to do specifically that. But barring actually downloading what I know into your brain, um, design is like any other skill. And one thing I really want to make clear, design and art are two very different things that can draw on some of the same skills. So one thing is that's good good to kind of do is define like what a design is and really what I consider design to be is a visual way to convey some kind of message to encourage some kind of business outcome. And that's very, very general. And that's kind of by design. It's like defining, well, what is programming? Is it making sand do math? <laughs> kind of. Uh, but, but, but it's a little bit more than that. And, and so design is a very systematic thing. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that when they think about design because design and art have a lot of kind of crossover. And there are a lot of people who approach design the way that they approach art. And, and I see like, for example, a lot of things on Dribbble, which is a very popular site for designers. And if you're not familiar with Dribbble, it's Dribbble with three Bs, dribble.com. It's a great way to go. I'll and put see that in the show links to make it easier. Designs. But some of them you look at and it will look very, very cool. Like there was a very popular trend towards the end of, I want to say 2019 called new morphism where it was this like very like kind of three-dimensional um, almost like soft plastic looking design. And it looks really cool. But if you were to actually use that in a product, you would hate it so fast. And so when it comes to design, you always need to think about, and this is a very big component of UX design. Who's going to actually use this? What context are they going to be using it in? And, you know, what assumptions are you making? So another good thing to do is separate UX design from UI design because there is a big relation there. And a lot of people will, will wear both hats in an organization. For example, at Plush Care, we have our designers are generally usually UX UI designers, which you can think of as being like a full stack designer, whereas, you know, they, they don't just do the, the, the pretty front end. They also do all of the stuff behind the scenes. So generally, to, to differ, differentiate those two things, UX is a lot of research. It's a lot of you know, doing surveys, doing usability testing, trying and figure out why someone prefers the way something feels compared to another product. And then UI design is obviously the visual component, um, the how is this going to animate in, if at all. And so kind of understanding which component of design you're kind of engaging in is really important and separating the two and, and really trying not to get too artistic with a design is also really important because definitely there have been times in the past where I've you know put together a design and I thought to myself, this is sick. I am so proud of this. And then I try and kind of think about, okay, well, how is this actually going to be to use and I have all these animations and maybe some 3D elements and there's all this stuff going on. And it's like, well, this is really distracting. <laughs> and maybe something a little bit more boring would, would actually drive business results. So that's important too. And, and go ahead. So, so that's the concept of, so UX user experience, that's kind of like, is it functional? 
Whereas UI user interface, yeah, it's funny. I've never actually needed to like say UI user interface. That's more like the beauty behind it. So you can have a very functional design UX um, without it necessarily being beautiful um, and visually appealing. And those are kind of the two pillars within design. Correct. Now, that's not to say that UI design is not important. It's incredibly important. Um, and you know, studies have actually shown the more aesthetically appealing a product is, the more usable it feels. So it, it's hard to quantify which is more important because if you try and use a product and it looks hideous, a lot of people will just, they won't care about it. They'll just say, you know what? I don't like how this looks. Hmm. I don't, I don't want to put in the time. And I think, you know, if, if for anybody listening, try and think about the products you use, most of them are probably relatively aesthetically appealing. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, like you said, as, as a developer, it's like that technical skill where, you know, you just have to have a base level or you're not going to work, right? Um, and, and then UX is kind of trying to in, in, improve on the, the actual usability of, of a product. I was really um, related to this. One of the pieces of advice that you gave me when building Elixir Newbie that like will stick with me now on every project I do because it's such good advice. I was literally talking about it today with someone else kind of um, completely uh, uh, unrelated to, to doing this today. And it was when you're creating the mock. So the mock is like the pretend drawing of whatever application you're going to build. Do it in paper first and think about just the content. Yeah. And that forces you to think about the UX, the experience. It's like, well, if you have um, a podcast and you have all these episodes, how do you want to display that? You know, like I had uh, the first iterations of Elixir Newbie, you, I believe, highlighted some content issues where the way I wanted to display the blogs was going to be not particularly scalable as it grew. Mm -hmm. And like once you, and I, I still have some of those issues in there, I think where once the content, once there's enough of it, the design will no longer function for the amount of content that will be in there. Um, so that, that pen and paper approach makes it so that you can think about just the data. And the nice thing about it is that you don't get attached to it. You can just throw it out you know, put it in the trash, try a new one. Whereas if you spent all this time designing it with something like Figma or some other mock software, um, even if you're doing a very basic, even if you're doing sticks and boxes within that mock software, you'll still get attached to it because it was more effort and it's harder to just throw it away than a piece of paper. Exactly. And, and another thing, the main reason why I like to do it that way, you know, my, my process just to kind of give like a, a one, two, three kind of thing is I write down, okay, well, what, what is the objective of this page, this screen? Cause usually there's an action that you're wanting user to take. And, and that action is not necessarily like a traditional conversion. It might be, you want them to learn about who you are as a developer. If it's for, if it's a portfolio site, you want them to see your skills, or if it's on an e-commerce site, you want someone to buy this product, something like that. Or even on, let's say, a privacy policy. You want this to be readable to someone. You want them to understand how you're protecting their privacy online, things like that. So understanding the objective of a page is like the first step, because if you don't know what the objective of a page or a screen is, you're kind of wandering around in the dark, just hoping that you're going to do something right. And so getting that right, and then kind of figuring out, okay, well then what needs to be there? Is this a landing page where we're doing content marketing and getting people to 
sign up for our mailing list to get a white paper. Okay, there needs to be a form on that page. There needs to be some mechanism for them to opt into your mailing list. There needs to be a bunch of written content, you know, establishing the value proposition, things like that. So then getting a list of, okay, well, what needs to be on the page? And then you can get to that, you know, pen, paper, squiggles, squares, and some X's and figure out, okay, well, this could go here, this could go here. And then what would this look like on mobile? And then maybe on a tablet or, you know, what experiences are you designing for to kind of figure out, okay, you know, if this is going to be different for people who work on maybe a smartwatch and the UI there, I have never done that design. I can't speak to a process there. This is mostly for, you know, web apps, mobile apps and marketing websites, things like that. Um, but yeah, getting, getting into that, how's the layout going to be? And what I kind of liken it to is when you build a product, you don't do everything all at once, right? You're not doing the front end and the back end and the data model and all this stuff. You're not doing it all at the same time. Whereas with design, if you just go into something like Figma, you can do everything at once and you will fall into that trap. And what, what it really prevents you from doing is getting hung up on things while you're still trying to solve some of those basic design problems like layout because when you're doing things in pen and paper you can't get hung up on what font you're going to choose <laughs> you can't get hung up on oh, what if it was this shade of purple you can't do that yet so you know getting things right there and then what i do is what i call a low fidelity like mock-up where i'm taking these squiggles and turning them into grayscale squares in something like figma or adobe xd or sketch and then getting a sense of it there in a, in a slightly more like real context where like, okay, if this was actually a phone, does my design still work? Does this layout work? And then, you know, getting it aligned to, you know, whatever grid you're using. Are you using material design? Are you doing a pixel grid? Things like that. Getting all of that down. And then what you'll find is if you do do that, you've just almost completely designed what you're working on because you have the layout done. And that is so important. And I, I think one of the questions that you had for me is like, what what do I often see developers get wrong when they're designing something? Layout, almost always layout and color, really, because those are both very hard things to get right. But if you can just get the layout right, it does so much and it will feel so much more usable to people because a lot of developer projects are very, very crowded and there's just not enough negative space. And, and it just, you feel like there's a lot going on. And obviously as a developer, you want to show off what you can do, which is why that happens. So it's a bit of like kind of reining yourself in. And then so once you've done that and you have this kind of like, you know, it's in Figma, but it still just sticks in boxes, putting in the actual content that you're going to use. So the written content. So that enables you to see, okay, well, I thought I was going to have 300 words here. I have 500. Does my design need to change? Um, is this content going to be, for example, dynamic? Is this design going to have to shift over time to accommodate more content? Is this a blog post template where one blog could be you know, 200 words, one could be 1,000? What does it look like for both? And getting that component of it done. And then after that is when I start dealing with color and imagery and fonts. And I don't really have a set process there for which I do first. Um, if you're working you know, for somebody, you'll have a brand guide 
where it'll say, okay, well, we use images in this style. We have these fonts. These are our colors. And so you'll have more guardrails there. If this is just a project you're working on, try and just do one at a time. And, you know, maybe I just referenced something there that people haven't thought about, but that's, you know, having some kind of brand guide. And there's a lot of brand guides out there that are freely accessible. SEMrush has one. Um, I've looked at the one for Medium before their most current rebrand, really good. Um, you can see a lot of these and you can see, okay, well, what does a brand guide look like? How can I apply that to this design that I've made? And, you know, another re really good resource I highly recommend any developer who wants to get better at design read. It's a book called Refactoring UI. It is the most actionable thing I have ever read for how to improve at design as a developer. It will give you steps and things to avoid, how to pick colors, how to choose a typeface. It's, it's so good, highly recommend. Um, but going through the process in this way, it, it, it makes it almost a little bit more like development because you have a process. You're going through things in these more bite-sized pieces as opposed to just going into Figma and doing everything all at once. Because if you do that, it you know I've tried that and it does not work out even as someone who has worked as a designer. Yeah, the systematic approach I really like. Uh, and truthfully, when I first started programming, uh, and even sometimes when I'm really just slapping something together, uh, I'll start in the code with my design. It's like that, that's a bad idea. That's a terrible idea because then, I mean, you want to talk about being attached. You're literally coupled to whatever implementation you did. You can't just move the box on the mock. You have to like reprogram that and restyle it and create new elements. And it's, it's a whole, you know, you really are committed at that point. So, um, making it systematic. And, uh, I, I really want to get your thoughts on, so you've talked about this book and, um, brand guides and different ways of kind of growing and improving your design skills. One of the challenges I have in front of me is I have about two days that I've allotted to styling and design HTML and CSS. How do you, um, how do you design things? And two days is not a lot of time, um, and my, my kind of goal skill that I want people to walk out of is I, like, I think the skill that matters, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, the skill that matters as a developer, not as like a UX UI designer or someone who's more on that side of things, but as a developer, the core thing you need to be able to do, generally speaking, when you're working on a team and not building your own thing is you need to be able to take some mock or design and you need to be able to build it. So it's, it's almost that like, pick an item that you see on the page right now. Uh, you, the user, <laughs> you, or the listener, sorry. Um, if you're seeing something on a web page and you look at it and you go, could I build that? Like, you know, within our uh, program right here, there's like uh, a video box that, that has Kurt's face on it. So I get to see him and it has like rounded borders and there's all sorts of little UI touches where I would know how to implement that in CSS. Um, and how do you, how do you teach people to do that? So, um, yeah, I'm curious, how do you, how, how would you recommend that people can improve their design skills and what, what type of projects they should be, should they be making or maybe exercises or like, how do you get better at the raw technology of, okay, cool. I need to both learn CSS and all the different things that I can do with it. And then I need to figure out how do I apply that to actually making a thing? Yeah. So 
for specifically growing your design skills, a really good thing you can do is dissect the products that you like to use, that you use in your day-to-day and figure out, why do I like this? Find something that you hate. Try and figure out why that is. So, you know, I I use, for example, um, the app uh, Notion a lot for for note-taking, for organizing my life, things like that. And, you know, I like, with Notion, there's always a lot of negative space. The color palette is very kind of neutral. So for the content that I put into it, it doesn't really matter what I'm putting onto it. It's it, it's a very adaptable kind of color palette. So that's really helpful. Um, it uses a very neutral and modern typeface, think, things like that. So, so try and understand what you like and then try and figure out why that is. And then specifically for applying that, um, traditional, Design is like any other skill. Some people really feel like they can't just design something. But you have to, you know? <laughs> if you've never coded an app before, how do you learn how to do that? You do it. You And it sucks. And then you figure out, okay, well, why does this suck? I'll fix these things. And so when, when it comes to design, it, it's like any other skill. You have to do it. And you have to do it a lot. And you have to fail. And you have to build things that suck. You have to design things that are terrible, that are hideous, because then you can learn from those mistakes. And another thing that I'd really recommend is if you have a friend who's learning how to design, you know, you can partner up and review and do design review with each other. And, you know, as part of design review, it's really hard to be objective all the time. Your preferences will bleed into your design review, but that's just life. I've, I've definitely sat in some, some calls with clients where they're really adamant that they want things to be a certain way from a design perspective. And I can tell them, Hey, that will actually make things worse as far as business objectives go, just so you know. And they will say, I don't care. I want it this way. (laughs) And you just have to say, (laughs) okay, you know, you're doing, you're doing work for somebody else at the end of the day, they have to like it. So, but really when it comes to honing your design, your design skills, do design exercises, um, force yourself to design with colors you haven't before. Um, try and use different types of color harmonies. Um, you can look up a list of color harmonies online very easy. And there's different kinds of color harmony that are good for different things. Some types of color harmony, like a complementary color harmony, where it's two colors on the exact opposite sides of the color wheel. There's a lot of clash there and you'll find like, a lot of logos will, will kind of use this in the fast food world, like McDonald's, their logo, red and yellow, are very opposite colors in the color wheel, very contrasting. Um, in a lot of movie posters, you'll see uh, orange and blue, which again, not quite opposite, but close. And it kind of like creates this like tension in the design. Um, so forcing yourself to kind of do these, these more arbitrary design exercises. Um, another actionable thing, pick one font and use it stick with it um it when you get into pairing fonts is when you kind of open a can of worms if you're going to use two fonts use a serif and a sans serif so if you're not familiar with those what those are a serif is something like times new roman where it has these things called the serifs which are the little extra things on the characters Arial, of course doesn't have that it's a sans serif font um and so you know you can use a serif and a sans serif and oftentimes they'll just pair pair well 
when you get into pairing two serifs together, two sans serifs, that's where you have to actually know what you're doing as far as, as far as pairing fonts will work, because what you can end up happening or end up having is two fonts that are very, very similar, but just different enough to bother you. So pick one font. If, you're, if you mm. want two different fonts for like your headings and your body copy, serif and sans serif. And then if you really want to like push yourself, then you can use, you know, two of the same type, but understand that you will probably make a bad choice at first. <laughs> Most designers will, will stay away from doing that for, <laughs> for the reasons I just mentioned. Um, and then once you've designed something, code it, you know, write it in HTML and CSS, or if you're using a front end framework, JSX <laughs> with style components, things <laughs> like that. Um, because then that will give you the experience of, Hey, there's this thing built and I have to build it. All right, there's this thing designed and I have to build it. Yeah, I'm a I'm a Roboto guy. That's mm. my go-to. Don't know if it's good. Roboto don't know if it's bad. Uh, I have a awesome. Yeah. Oh, thank gosh. <laughs> um, I have a I have a graphic designer in the family, uh, and it's hilarious watching her point out different advertisement and looking at typography because uh, she'll just you know she'll be like, oh my god, I can't believe they used Helvetica. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, Hel- and uh, yeah, these things Helvetica. matter. Helvetica. I'll be honest. I am a Helvetica enjoyer obviously i don't know what i would liken it to but helvetica is like the the fast food of of serif fonts it's quick it's easy is it the best usually no but it's nice and it will get the job done um <laughs> i'm sure some people will hate that i just All said right. that uh, and i hate myself a little bit I'll, I'll, maybe i'll cut that out for your safety we'll, <laughs> oh, we'll, yeah. we'll see i'm sure i'm sure some designers will hear that and uh, be out for my blood so thank you <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, I know that one other thing you're you're passionate about and that we talked about a little bit before is accessibility. And truthfully, um, to my shame, accessibility is something that I really need to improve. And I have found, awkwardly enough, um, kind of inaccessible. Uh, figuring out how to write highly accessible code um is a skill in and of itself and there's there's elements of it that are just the nature of the systems that we're using not being particularly um well developed or intuitive at least that's my opinion but i'm i'm willing to be wrong there i don't have as much experience with it um yeah so i'd I'd love to hear uh what you think about accessibility why is it important and then maybe we can talk about how to get better yeah so accessibility is just something that i feel like should be an expectation honestly um and it it really is a shame that it's this kind of extra skill you can have like oh i can i can write code that's also accessible and so there's two components to accessibility obviously there's the technical code aspect of it then there's the design aspect of it so with design there are some distinct standards that you can adhere to there's the wcag 2.0 guidelines So that's things like rules for color contrast, for text legibility, and really, if your design looks good, oftentimes that's also because it's accessible. Not always. There are some very good-looking designs that are completely inaccessible, but for things like ensuring that the text content on your site is readable. It, that's important. (laughs) You know, not, not everybody has perfect eyesight. I certainly don't. And just making sure that even from like going to a to a more capitalist 
business objectives perspective, you want as many customers as you can possibly have, right? So you want your designs to be as accessible as possible. You want your apps to be accessible. And then from a coding perspective, and you know, there are a lot of people who will bring up this issue, but a lot of UI frameworks are not very accessible. For example, Bootstrap, most things are divs. For Tailwind, I, I haven't used Tailwind very much, but I think it's similar. Most things are divs. But just trying to lay things out in a way that makes sense as far as semantics goes. So as opposed to using divs everywhere, use, use semantic elements like header, footer, aside, article, and so on. Use actual headers in a hierarchy. And you know, use sections and then look up um, for specifically like kind of like very, very like, I, I don't know, maybe hardcore accessibility, use ARIA attributes and labels and things like that and understanding, OK, well, what is a landmark in a page? I think that's really important because obviously we want our products to work for people. And especially for, for example, in my current role for Plush Care, we're a telehealth company. We treat patients who can't see who are visually impaired or who otherwise have issues, for example, using a mouse and keyboard. You know, we we take a lot of things for granted when we're able-bodied that, you know, if you have different health issues or disabilities, you just can't use a product in the same way. For example, my mom, she only has one functioning hand. So the way that she interacts with products is just different from the way that I do. She has limitations that I don't have. And so understanding that, understanding that not everybody who uses your product will be, you know, that ideal user and trying to make things more comfortable for them to use. You know, go if, if you've built something, try and navigate using the tab key and just see what happens. A lot of the times you'll try and use the tab key on, on a product and you just kind of can't. That's a huge accessibility barrier for people. It's a it's a very tough feedback loop happening, I think, because what I'm what I observe going on in tech is that at the startup level, the um, very valid like argument and point of you want as many users as possible is tougher because when you're at scale in your enterprise, then opening up your accessibility will will grant you a, a you know huge user base and more people can now use your product. And you're also working at a scale where it's it's kind of the right thing to do to make it um, accessible for for people who exactly. need it. Um, but at the startup scale, it's often, you know, I, I got in a conversation with someone once about like, oh, we should mandate accessibility, like it should be legally required for any application well, to have it. Let me stop and, you. There. If you work for an American company, you will probably be actually subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, for your website or product. So if you're in the States, there is actually a legal component to being accessible. Um, for example, at PlushCare, we have to make sure that our product is accessible. Um, for other clients that I've worked for in the past, um, you know, th they had a physical location. So that meant they were subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act for their website and for their products. So there is an, there is an element of that. And honestly, I think in Canada, we should have a similar thing. You know, it's when and the, the, the pandemic really accelerated this but think about you know if we we have accommodations for people if they're going to you know like a high school there are, are ramps there are accessibility services that they can draw upon when everything went online 
imagine if you know you're someone who is you know either unsighted or you have some kind of other impairment if just zoom didn't work for you education becomes completely inaccessible for you you know so it, yep. it's so important and and sometimes legally required so check check with with the with uh your your legal team at work if you're a developer and try and find out maybe we should be doing this because you don't want to get hit with an 88 lawsuit yeah i i wonder how many companies inherit a certain tech mm -hmm. debt um that makes it difficult because i think like i would love to hear your thoughts on i think at the startup stage there would be a barrier to implementing accessibility um, your resources are quite small you don't necessarily have um, any product market fit yet there's no guarantee that anyone even wants the product so you don't know that people are even going to use it yet um, so i can empathize with why people would think of it as not an immediate priority but then you have an entire system that isn't accessible by the time you hit the point where oh hey we found product market fit now we have the income now this matters um, so how do we, how do we interrupt that loop that's happening? Like what other, other like persuasive arguments are there things we could be doing to make accessibility easier to implement? So it feels like less of a, a cost I'll, barrier. I'll push back a little bit on that. You can't do it at the startup stage. I think that's when you have to start doing it to have any hope. And also like when it comes to building like an accessible UI, it, it's not really that hard to do it when you don't have anything in place, just use semantic elements and you know if if the styling isn't accessible you know you, you can change color contrast pretty easily you know color whatever mm -hmm. uh, you can you can do that after the fact so i i push back on that a little bit and then also there there is a tool uh, a chrome extension actually that you can get called axe axe um i, I forget the, the full name it's like axe accessibility but you can install that in chrome run it on you know your website the same as you would any other um element of chrome dev tools and it will sh it will call out and say hey you know the the color contrast here is too low this page doesn't have any landmarks or you know this you're you know you used a button but or you used you know it just in in the wrong way basically you used a semantic element the wrong way and that is really helpful we use it at plus care um and just just awesome. be very aware of the fact that like you know if you don't do it right the first time <laughs> it'll be much harder to fix when you come back to it exactly and and sorry mm -hmm. let me just clarify that my point was no not no no I, and, and, and I, I completely um, understand that. i'm just saying like you know if if you are working for a startup or you have or you know you're a ceo you have a startup accessibility is important and it's really not that hard to implement. It, it's really not now, obviously, if you're using a UI framework like Bootstrap, like Tailwind, like Bulma, um, try and look at, you know, how are these components actually built under the hood as opposed to just using them? And if, if you're committed to something like this, it, it can be tough. And I do I do understand that. But that's kind of what ARIA attributes can, can help with because you can set a role. You know, for example, like with an image element, you can say, hey, role is presentation. Doesn't show up for a screen reader, which is helpful. Um, and kind of understanding, okay, well, what elements of, of this are not accessible? How can we kind of fix that a little bit? And 
I, I think we as developers and as a community do need to push for this when it comes to, you know, how we use these frameworks, you know, push the maintainers and maybe even submit our own, you know, submit a pull request to, to add these attributes or, you know, replace elements with something more accessible, make it so that, you know, well, this isn't just a div with some text in it and an event listener. It's actually a button with a role, with a label. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and so one thing I just do want to take a quick step and clarify: when you say Tailwind, you're talking about a component framework uh, from the Elixir community. A lot of people think Tailwind. They'll think um, uh, Tailwind, which is a utility CSS thing, which doesn't involve like HTML at so, all. I don't think. Yeah, t Tailwind um, is it's mostly is a, a bit of both, is my understanding. I haven't used it too much um, so i might be misspeaking there and i freely accept that but yeah tailwind css but then if, if for example i go to um like tailwind's homepage, and this is kind of a good way that you can judge a, a component framework um if i look at their homepage, i'm just actually curious right now um they they do actually have some semantic elements which is good because i know they've been called out for that in the past uh but yeah just understand what, what what you're doing from a from a semantic html perspective and then implement that right okay and stepping back into the mind of because again what i'm trying to do here is step into the mind of the stressed out software engineer team you know they are making decisions left right and center of like what resources to allocate what things to spend time on they're putting out fires and my goal is to make it as easy as possible to make that cost benefit analysis, right? Because I think what's happening a lot in tech is that the default is, oh, I don't understand it, it's scary, and it's probably hard, so I'm not gonna go and do it. So I love there being something like Axe that can make it easier to uh, basically diagnose your system. That's something I'm gonna have to run on Elixir Newbie um, and see, see where that's at, because that's a site I want to be as accessible as possible. Um, it's tough with our component framework. So this is one of my other questions. Is like, I think there are structural things working against accessibility where the tools that we as developers want to leverage that will give us kind of superpowers of now it's easier, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. Not all of them have been designed with accessibility in mind. Is there anything we can do that like, um, so we have Axe. Is there anything else that would help us like profile or understand where, you know, is there anything we can do to make accessibility even easier to implement? Are there tools out there? Are there good frameworks that you would you would recommend? Or uh, is there anything else there that can kind of make that even easier to, to start doing and start learning? Specifically, I know Plusker's parent company, Accolade, is working on their own kind of design system that may in the future, I can't promise anything, may be open sourced um, in some fashion. And I, I, my understanding is that, you know, accessibility is a part of that. But, you know, it, it's just as a, you know, global community of developers, we have to be better and we have to demand better from both, you know, ourselves mm -hmm. and from, you know, the maintainers of these projects and these libraries to improve things in that way. And, you know, you like like I said, you you can um, kind of bolt things on a little bit with ARIA attributes. It's not perfect, 
You know, it's not a silver bullet, but you can do that. And then, you know, Axe is is really the the, <laughs> the easiest tool I can I can think of um, to to use to check whether or not your your product is accessible. You know, it, it's honestly similar to, for example, Lighthouse, which is part of Chrome DevTools. You open it up, scan my page. The extension is free. You can buy a pro version if you have a, a use case for those pro features, and it will it will pick up almost every issue that you could think of, um, at least as far as like semantics is concerned. Um, so. Awesome. I appreciate that immensely. I know that is going to help a lot of people who are, you know, trying to get better at this stuff and uh, hopefully we can all make more accessible programs because of it. So thank you for sharing your expertise, Kurt. I, I always appreciate chatting with you and um, yeah, anything, anything as a last uh, plug or shout out or, or a recommendation or anything that you want to uh, say before we sure. pop off the episode book that I would like to recommend is UX for beginners. Uh, I think it's, it has a, the subtitle, like a, a crash course in a uh, uh, hundred short lessons or something like that. It has a, a rubber duck on the cover and as developers, we love rubber ducks, <laughs> but it, it's another one where it, it's very, very actionable. Um, similar to refactoring UI, where it kind of tells you, hey, this is a problem. Here's how you can solve it. And, you know, th those two books, I, I owe a lot of my, my design skills to because they are just, it, w when I was reading them, it almost blew my mind of how it was just like, hey, just do this. <laughs> you can just do it like this, as opposed to a lot of things in the design community. Um, and design writing can be a little bit more ephemeral and hard to parse where it's like, oh yeah, you want your designs to be dynamic. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> and, you know, that might mean, <laughs> oh, hey, you know, that use motion. But then, you know, in, in refactoring UI, I think it's specifically called out, hey, um, don't have a, an animation that's more than 400 milliseconds long because that's when the human brain starts to recognize a noticeable delay. That's man. I, I wish I could have you on an episode, just like giving quick tips. I would, I would love if you like did a blog or anything like that in the future. Another one here. I'll, I'll give another tip. Um, <laughs> use HSL as a um, kind of a mode of color because it's really easy to then create additional colors from your initial palette. So if you have, you know, for example, a blue, a green, and maybe like an orange, and you, and you think to yourself, I need a different shade of orange. If you're using something like hex, that it's hard. You're dragging a, a color picker around probably. Um, in HSL, you can just think, okay, well, I need it to be lighter. Let me just maybe it's at you know the the L value is 60. I need it to be lighter. Okay, it's 80 now. I have a different shade of orange. And then you can obviously check, okay, well, is this accessible and things like that. But as far as just generating another color, HSL will make your life so much easier as a designer. And it, it's the only color space I actually use when I'm designing. And then obviously for, for implementing in code, it's, you know, maybe I'm using hex or HSB, whatever, but stick with HSL and it will make your life very easy. And I stole that tip from refactoring UI. <laughs> nice. And that's a huge saturation yeah. in light, right? That's a different way of so, thinking about the colors that we use. And then you would convert that into hex. Cause I don't think you can use HSL directly in your, in your program. Is that I've wrong? Done it. I've never done um, it. So I CSS might, might support it. It might be one of those things where like older browsers don't 
like you know internet explorer <laughs> so i when i'm code when i'm writing code i just have everything as, as hex um because it does what i need it to i'm not changing colors in a yep. text editor ever um or at least I, I try not to, unless, like you said, I am slapping together a personal project that no one will ever see. That maybe, but uh, yeah, just use HSL. Yep. Um, you know, keep your animations tight, things like that. Awesome. Um, I'm also going to recommend uh, Don't Make Me Think, uh, and all of these uh, recommendations are going to be in the show notes, so hopefully everything that we talked about, I will link in the show notes for it to be easy to think access. Uh, that... Such a good book. And then another kind of classic design book to recommend is The Design of Everyday Things. That one is a bit more about the thought process of design. Um but I think it is valuable. If you really want to like add design to your skill set, I would recommend re reading that book. And another thing that can be really good to look at is industrial design. UX and you and, and you know that that kind of uh, UI of a different kind is so important in in in, um, in industrial design. I think there was an, an issue where like a nuclear reactor ended up melting down because, a light was green, which meant this thing was off as opposed to being red, you know? And it's like things like that, or even going back, I used to work in a movie theater and the light switches were green went off and red went on, which always made me think, Oh wait, what, what's happening here? So looking at industrial design, you'll see a lot of different kind of design patterns. And these are design patterns, not in the, the programming sense, but in the sense of design that, that you can, try and replicate a little bit because for example, like a stop sign, people need to know what a stop sign means, whether or not they can read what it says, you know, mm -hmm. a yield sign. And obviously some of these things only mean what we think because we've decided it or the government has, but trying to understand, okay, well, I'm trying to convey this kind of message like danger. How do we convey danger in industrial design? usually with red, usually with a lot of exclamation points. Um, thing, or how, do we, how, how, how does a, a sign that says caution look? How can I implement, like take inspiration from that and, and apply it to code? And obviously a lot of this is for when you're creating guardrails around you know, your experiences. For example, if you want to make it very clear that if a user deletes their account, there's no going back. <laughs> That's very important but it, it's a good <laughs> place to draw inspiration from as far as dangerous actions or potentially risky actions for, for a user. Yeah, that's where some of the, the worst frustration points can, can be in our applications is if it's too easy mm -hmm. to do something really bad yeah. or lose all your work or, yeah, I've definitely been there. Um, well, awesome. Well, thank you, Kurt. Um, that is going to be it for this episode of the Election Newbie Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you newbies out there enjoyed this episode and learned a lot. Uh, if you want to chat and send me a message, I'm always available uh, at Brooklyn J Myers on Twitter. Uh, you can always send me a DM there. I love hearing from you. And I hope you all have an excellent rest of your week. 